I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. Every episode we start by talking about our week in review, which focuses on movies we've seen and TV shows we've seen since the last episode. Then we move on to our main event, which is either a main review or topic of discussion. Then we wrap up with film faves, our respective lists of our favorite movies around a particular topic, typically marching back through time year by year. In this episode, our main event will be a main review of Ant-Man and Wasp, the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe film. And film faves will be about what year, Shanna? 1996. That's right. It's going to be really interesting. The year of action. Yeah. So, first, let's talk about what we have been watching in our Week in Review. Shanna, what is your week look like? Well, this week, I, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of time. It's the first two weeks of summer vacation, so we were trying to get used to that new routine with our son. Yeah. Hang in there, parents. <laughs> we're almost halfway. <laughs> so I got to eventually watch something by myself, which was Brain on Fire, which is a Netflix original. It stars Chloe Moretz, Carrie Ann Moss, Jenny Slate, and Tyler Perry. Really? Uh, what is this about? So this is a good film to go in cold. So I'm going to be very careful how I use my words, of course. IMDb describes it as a young, capable professional cannot explain her newly erratic behavior. Hmm. And that's really mysterious. They don't give anything away. But what I will comment on is we go on this ride of something unknown. We're not really sure what's happening to her, but they're showing it through the cinematography of what she's experiencing. So it's like it's like her mind you know when you have like a brain fart or if you have like a moment of numbness like you just zone out there's a lot of that happening and how they do that is really cool because you know it's they're taking not only her vision her but they're taking the sound they're taking her into different environments and like showing what that's like for a person Mm. through the movie so you have to kind of pay attention to what's going on which okay. is really nice because she's having this erratic behavior she's seen professionals mm-hmm. and nobody's really sure what's going on what so, who plays the professional the main character ah that's chloe moretz oh and wow then carrie which i you know i know sometimes she's a hit and miss but i really liked her in this i okay. thought i was like oh there you are Overall, I'm a fan of Chloe Moretz. I think she has a lot of potential and talent, and sometimes, you're right, she has made some missteps in her career, unfortunately. But it's interesting to see her of that age now, where she can play a young professional. Yeah, yeah. And Oh, I also wanted to say there's like a red herring or two. Mm. You think the movie's going to go one direction, and it doesn't. Like, I even thought it was going to go in the zombie direction. So (laughs) I'm not saying it did or it didn't. Uh I'm just saying that's where my mind went. Okay. Yeah, it was really it was really nice seeing her be a professional. Is this one of the better Netflix originals that you've seen or is it kind of middle of the road or do you not recommend it at all? I totally recommend it because the ride that you go on and what 
what the conclusion eventually is is totally worth watching. Okay. I enjoyed watching the little scenes with Jenny Slater. Uh, Jenny Slater. Be- Oh, sorry, Slate. That's her friend, her co-worker. Oh, okay. And then Tyler Perry is her boss, so... Oh, okay. And then Carrie Ann Moss is her mom. Gotcha. So it's it's nice. It's a nice little cast. It's nice when Tyler Perry's doing something other than Medea, you know? When he's doing something like Gone Girl or possibly something like this. Oh, God, I love him in Gone Girl. Yeah. We watched that recently he's, again. He's kind of awesome, you know? Yeah, we did rewatch uh, Gone Girl to show to a couple friends. I have... Fun forgotten i also checked out diet land oh yes this was a documentary is this also a netflix original no no this is amc's tv show oh okay i get it mixed up with all those health food documentaries that you find on netflix what's uh what's this uh series about so diet land is a new television show it's an amc it's been made by amc this is starring a character named plum kettle She's a ghostwriter for the editor of one of New York's hottest fashion magazines. Struggling with self-image and fed up with how she's treated by her boss and society, Plum sets out on a wildly complicated road to self-awakening. At the same time, everyone is buzzing over news reports about men accused of sexual abuse and assault who are disappearing and meeting untimely violent deaths. Oh, this it's, is definitely up your alley. Oh my gosh, it's so fascinating, especially how they've put it together. So that was IMDb's description, and it's very, you know, accurate. And Who stars in it? Anybody that we know? Yes. So the, the fashion editor is played by Juliana... Margulies! Oh, yeah. from ER and from The ER. Good Wife. And then Plum Kettle is played by Joy Nash. Uh-huh. And then we've got Tamara Tooney. We've got someone called Adam Roth something. All right, not too many like known names, but uh, it seems that Juliana is the, the headliner. And it's created by Marty Noxon, who a lot of people may know for such shows as uh, uh, Unreal, uh, producing Unreal, she wrote that um, Netflix original To the Bone that you were a fan of. Oh, I like that one, yeah. Girlfriend's Guide to the Divorce, it looks like. And she produced some Buffy the Vampire Slayer also. Well, and I also wanted to mention that this Diet Land is based on a best-selling novel by, I think it's Sarah Walker. Okay. Her name is spelt a little different there. Uh-huh. It's, it's very dark comedy. And it has very strange moments. But what's lovely about this show is... Anyone that's had any self-image challenges in their life can totally relate to this. And anyone that is um, cheering on Me Too and Time's Up can totally relate to the background stuff that's happening. Mm. We're kind of so focused on Plum's life. Mm-hmm. And it also shows like how absorbed she has become with trying to go through this sort of healing path mm. um, to you know, bring her self-image to a healthy place. Hmm. And so it's really fun. Hmm. I really enjoy it. I have to watch it when our son is not in the room, obviously, because, you know, you're going to hear all sorts of words. You're going to see all sorts of things. Hmm. Like, you know, um, people are in the film, in the TV show, she comes across different artists because of her career. And one artist has created an exhibit where a room is filled with YouTube videos. Oh, no, sorry. I don't think it's YouTube, so sorry about that. 
It's some sort of what it's the top 20 or top 100 porn video clips that are being played right now. So she's done some sort of coding that's going to show that and it's all projected on the wall and things that I didn't know about where um, males are essentially choking out females with their sexual organ. Um, the penis? To, the penis? Well, I'm like so the hesitant dicks. to say anything. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> to the point where they're, they're making women vomit and that's how they're getting off on it. Oh, um, I didn't Lovely. know that that was a thing. And so I'm being exposed to things that I didn't know about and... Yeah. I think there are important things to know about as a woman. It's so. important to know that people stick their dicks down your throat so much that you throw up. <laughs> These are things you should know. I mean, it kind of is. That's gross. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> it's unacceptable behavior. Yeah. So it's. I really like the TV show. I'm very interested to see which direction it's going to going to go in. And they also have a show afterwards after the live airing that's kind of like The Talking Dead, where they actually go ahead oh. and analyze each episode. Who hosts I, that? I have not been able to partake in that, so I don't uh, know. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. But okay. there it is. So that's Dietland on AMC. Well, I have really only gotten a chance to check out one thing on my own, aside from watching the occasional episode on Hulu of, of shows or whatever, and that is 2017's film, It Comes at Night. I'm still catching up on 2017 movies, and this was one that came highly regarded and uh, as a, an effective thriller. It is not a movie for you, Shanna, as it does involve a dog, and being a horror film, you can imagine... Uh, well, we're just going to move right on then. Yeah, you know. I will say just right out front, my opinion of it is it's fine. It's okay. Uh, it's, it's one of those single location, largely single location movies with a group of people and about, uh, once again, uh, tension rising amongst a group of people. The actual backdrop of it is there's some sort of virus going around uh, killing people. And so uh, the main characters, uh, led by Joel Edgerton, you know, these families kind of confine themselves from society and try to sustain themselves on their own. And they're all on edge about anybody else that they come across kind of thing. You know, you almost think it's imagine a zombie apocalypse only with a virus instead that just kills people, and so you want to make sure you don't have any contact with anybody who may or may not be infected, mm-hmm. right? That's the backdrop of it, and it's really about any tensions of outsiders coming into this single location kind of thing. And in hindsight, I kind of feel like it, we've seen this before. It hits similar beats as we've seen before. The final act is kind of like, well, you know, we've been here before. Things eventually not go well. People become suspicious of each other. Mm. And not everybody survives, that sort of thing. So you're saying it's not very original? When you think of it like that, yeah. That's why I think it's it's fine. I think it's a, um, probably a solid 6 out of 10. Because, like, as what it is, it's effective, you know, at building tension. There are a couple things about it that's like, well, you know, if you just communicate or if you just didn't do this instead of that, you know, then this, things would be a whole lot better kind of thing, you know? Mm. Oh, and when when a movie makes me think like that, it takes me out of the movie a little bit, and it's kind of to the movie's detriment, the, where the screenwriters, like, didn't eliminate that thought process from happening. 
You know what I mean? So yeah. it's fine. It comes at night. It's I think it's available to stream now on Netflix, but I got it through Netflix DVD to make sure I actually watched it. So aside from that, you and I got to watch a movie together. Yes, we got to watch... Another 2017 film we caught up with. Yeah, a documentary. Yep, an inconvenient sequel, which is, of course, the sequel to 2006's An Inconvenient Truth. Now, Shanna, had you seen An Inconvenient Truth? Yes, I had. Okay. So, uh, we both had seen the film with familiarity going into it. What are your thoughts about An Inconvenient Sequel? Um, and, and, and I think it's important first to parse out like our the- feelings of the film as a film <laughs> okay. versus the content the and content. the subject matter, right? Which okay. is tr- kind of tricky, right? It is tricky because it is a it is a, a hot button. Sure. You know? Yeah. Look, it's very important to have more films about climate change and the effects it's having on the world, on the planet, on each culture. Uh-huh. And when people were first starting to wake up to climate change around you know the early 2000s that was great people were like oh okay what can i do okay i did one thing so now i'm good and it's just really nice to see the sequel because it's like this refresher oh yeah i should switch off my lights because i'm not using them and that'll Mm -hmm. help lower my carbon footprint etc so for one thing it's really nice to have a reminder uh-huh. For another thing, it's good to have this information because now they have the Paris Climate Change. Paris Agreement. Like the, yeah, and it's good to see that. And it's also nice to have updated information like the Paris Climate Control Bill Agreement, I mean. And it's also nice to see what other countries around the world are doing, but also what they're facing since the last film. Yes. As a reminder that, look, it, it kind of it's still here. You know, we haven't actually solved it. We haven't made it go away. And that seemed to be the purpose of the film. Okay, so as a film, what did you think of it? So let's go on to, like, critical. I thought it was very well lit. It was very well put together. The editing okay. was very good. It was There was nice inclusion representing the different countries. South Africa even got some recognition there. Right. Anytime they get recognition i'm like oh good we're on the plate right this is great so it didn't seem to be too one-sided it was a well-made documentary the cinematography was good there were beautiful shots of you know the ice caps and things like that. oh yeah when he visits like uh, greenland Mm -hmm. very well lit Uh very well edited the sound was amazing did it feel did it feel manipulative in any way some movies, mm-hmm. when they're about an issue, they could be so agenda-driven that it doesn't feel like you're getting the whole the, picture, the whole picture or, the, or the right all the facts or what have you, and it feel, and you can feel manipulated um, while watching uh, such a film. So Did something that was interesting that this film did was, you know, they have their agenda. They're trying to tell you what they're trying to tell you. Yeah. And the problem with this specific topic is when you're trying to make a huge change with climate change, mm. it involves a huge investment, financial investment. Yeah. It's, it's a huge invest, investment up front, and that's the end of it. Yeah. You know? but, but then it, it pays off over time. And they don't really focus on why that is. They don't really focus on 
you know, what we all know is that, okay, well, if everybody jumps in and takes part, it'll bring the cost down. Mm -hmm. And they depicted that when they were having negotiations with India. Was it? Oh, yeah, India. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the only time you really hear the other side of why climate change is so difficult for everyone to participate yeah. In preventing. Was India the country that has spent a lot of focus and time on trying to negotiate and get them to um, agree? Yeah, because yeah. what ended up happening is Al Gore had to eventually get... Some, you know, you don't really get all the details, but you see him speaking to the solar panel company that he was starting to build a relationship with. Right. And he says, I've got an opportunity for you. Now, as a business owner, I know mm-hmm. that that means it's not going to be full price. <laughs> Uh, of whatever. So I don't know all the details of that. Right, right, right. And right, right. I know that what they were battling, what India was battling with is they weren't getting money from the World Financial Bank mm. um, to help with the project, mm. which means the solar panel people had to discount whatever they were giving. Mm. And what I didn't like about that, it was just brushed off. He didn't give us any slides. Well, the, I think also India had a bit of a grudge against uh, the states. Want to say, oh, sure, now you want to fix things, you know? Well, they felt like they were being accused of the problem makers. Like yeah, they were right, doing right. what they could to support their country, and that meant not the best clean options, but the most affordable. Yeah. So, right, yeah. That's why I think they had an issue with America. I think it's a very effective documentary it tries very much to stick with facts and not feelings this is i wouldn't necessarily describe this to be an overly emotional documentary and that's sometimes when it can get manipulative when a movie's about a particular subject um, and it's relying on making you feel uh things there's a lot of facts and numbers there's a lot of you know, we said this was going to happen, and look, this is what happened. When did I say it was going to happen? <laughs> exactly yeah. when I said it was going to happen. <laughs> right. Sorry, it was an inside joke between <laughs> Shan and I. But I thought that stuff was very effective. And it gave me a sense of dread of, are we too late? You know, all the efforts, you know, these little victories uh, that, that are made they ultimately in big picture are they like just little small victories that ultimately like it's too late to be able to reverse the effects we have made and i certainly am not one to argue well it's too late so we shouldn't do anything but it does give me this like this this sense of dread this worry that we as a society a global society have been so stubborn and ignorant about this particular issue that we have waited too long for it to finally click in and to to uh, to get it, you know, for us to be able to actually make a difference. But my own dim and gloom fears aside, I thought it was a, a very interesting, fascinating, and effective film. Was it one of the best documentaries of the year? I highly doubt that. Although I don't think 2017 was necessarily a stellar year for documentaries anyway but it's definitely i think it's a necessary one for a lot of people like you said have at the very least this reminder you know this concrete reminder that there are things you can be doing yeah and i think you're right it's not the best documentary film but they certainly had data yeah 
Oh, and I, I should, uh, before we close, I should also say it's very interesting seeing Al Gore's reactions to the Paris Agreement and then Trump's reactions and, and his reaction to Jerome. And, you know, you just kind of get this, ugh. It's very hard to This facepalm reaction from him, you know? It's very hard to not actually feel anything there. Right, because here's a guy who's working tirelessly 24-7 to make a difference, and then this this guy comes in and just judges you know, knowing fuck all or just not caring about the issue at all, clearly is on reported uh, saying on an interview, we shouldn't be wasting our time with this. So, yeah, that was interesting, too. So anyway, that is, once again, Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, which you can actually, I think, stream now on Netflix as well. So let's move on to our main event, which is our review of Marvel's Ant-Man and the Wasp. I just have one question. When Cap needed help, if I'd asked you, would you have come? I guess we'll never know. But if you had, you'd have never been caught. I do some dumb things. And the people I love the most, they pay the price. Thanks to you, we had to run. We're still running. Let's go. Maybe you just need someone watching your back, like a partner. Hold on. You gave her wings and blasters. So I take it you didn't have that tech available for me. No, I did. That was from the trailer. The Ant-Man and the Wasp. Here's what we do typically with our main reviews. We talk about what we hate very much. We and first we put all the spoilers at the front. No, so... no, 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 no. Wrong, wrong, wrong. We talk first because it's so easy to talk about what we don't like about something. We talk first about what we did like about something. What was the good in a movie? Then we move on to what we didn't like. What was the bad and open it up to general discussion, which sometimes occurs before moving on to spoilers and final thoughts. Now, Ant-Man and Wasp, I'm going to share with you what the general synopsis of this film is. A lot of people are wondering, especially in the wake of Avengers Infinity War, what is Ant-Man and Wasp about? Is it you know about anything consequential at all? Uh, how does it tie into Avengers Infinity War? Well, I'll tell you, this is what it is about. It is about... Uh, Scott Lane balancing being both a superhero and a father. Hope Van Dyne and Dr. Hank Pym are on an urgent mission that ends up finding Ant-Man fighting alongside the Wasp to uncover secrets from their past. That's a very generic, very well, generic they don't give anything description. Away. I don't think it's giving anything away, especially since the, the, the opening sequence alone is, is all about this. Hope and Hank, Hope and Hank, are on a mission to find uh, Janet, the original Wasp, who was referenced in the first Ant-Man movie. We learn that Janet was on a mission with the original Ant-Man, Hank, and she shrank down to try to solve the mission, to complete the mission, and ended up going into the quantum realm, well, yeah. which apparently that's what's called when you go really, 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 really small. They have hope that Janet is still alive and are looking for her. All right, so, Shanna, 
let's let's uh, get into it. After watching Infinity War, did you have any expectations for Ant-Man and the Wasp? And what did you like about it? My expectations were you better have some sort of commentary. I mean, you better have some sort of tie-in to Infinity War. <laughs> I know that you're going to play with what you're going to do, and that's fine. But you need to sync up, at least. Mm-hmm. If, whether it's an end credit scene or whatever. And did it meet that expectation? Yes, we will be talking about that. Okay. What did you like about the film? I think my favorite character in this film is Luis. Oh, really? Oh, no. <laughs> Who is Hank's yeah. friend. Okay. And I, I love him as an actor, too. I, I love him. Not Hank's, but Scott's friend. Scott's. Oh. Yeah, played by Paul Rudd. Oh, sorry. Did I say Hank? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So, anyway, I really like him, and I like anything he does. <laughs> like, just seeing him makes me happy. You know, it's, it's just that kind of actor. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, there's a scene or two with him, and he really steals it, you know. Uh, there's a lot of things happening in this film, actually, which can sometimes be distracting, and we'll get get to that later. But Luis makes everything okay. <laughs> we should clarify, this is character played by Michael Pena, who um, has been in a lot of movies like Crash. And so uh, how does he make things okay for you? I know that this film tries to have a lot of funny moments. They're trying to make Ant-Man like Star-Lord. And hmm. okay. the thing is, if I have to compare the two, yeah. it's apples and oranges. Like, I would much prefer... I laugh much harder with a Guardians of the Galaxy movie hmm. than I do with either Ant-Man, An Ant-Man. movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Ant-Man's just not that funny to me. Oh, really? He's kind okay. of like the annoying high school guy that was interrupting my learning time <laughs> okay and, <laughs> and i know we're supposed to talk about the positivity but you know I, this is why Luis makes everything okay because he actually feels funny to me like okay yeah scott doesn't feel funny to me scott huh. feels irritating to me most of the time do you Sometimes usually have happens. an issue with uh paul rudd in general i don't know what else has he been in? Uh, oh, like a lot of things. Okay. I Love You Man. He was in Clueless. He d- dates that far back. Oh, maybe that's why he's irritating me. I don't know. Maybe it's a subconscious thing. I definitely feel like it's a personal thing. Hmm. Okay. Like, I see where they're going. I, what I did really enjoy was the relationship between father and daughters. Because you, don't, you not only have Scott and Peanut... You also have... <laughs> Scott and Peanut. <laughs> peanut. <laughs> yeah, his daughter, peanut. yeah. And I don't even know her name because he's always <laughs> saying Peanut. <laughs> I think her name might be Cassie. Okay. And then you have Hank Yeah. and Hope. Yeah. And that's not the only father-daughter relationship in and this movie. And then you have... <laughs> we finally get to see Lawrence Fishburne. Uh-huh. Yeah. You say finally as though you've been really expecting him to show up at some point. Well, when I realized who he was yeah, in the film, I was very excited. Yeah. And he is the father figure to Ghost. Yeah, we could say the villain, I suppose. Yeah, so to the villain. Yeah. So you've got three father-daughter relationships happening, which you don't really see a lot of. Yeah. Especially from such a caring perspective uh-huh. and, and involved and trying to make their... Their daughter's okay. I was going to say, they're all daughter 
yeah. relationships, which is interesting. Which is really nice to see because, I, you know, I don't know, I'm just so used to seeing the, oh, well, Dad, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and Dad's like, okay, that's great. We don't really get to see, like, daughters hurting, and Dad's trying to make it okay. In a way that isn't like, I'm going to kill the civilization to make my daughter feel okay. Huh, okay. I don't know. Maybe there there probably is stuff out there. It's just, this one felt special to me with that. Okay. So, the the father-daughter relationships you thought were very strong in this film. I thought so. It was a Hmm. really good theme. Uh, Was there anything else you liked about the movie? I love the costuming. I love the direction that costuming is going in. Okay. If I think about like Batman and Robin, and you know Batman and uh, yeah, who you the mean hell directed it? Nineties Batman yeah. movies. Think about nineties Batman and okay. you know, space space for nipples in the suit, uh, and Catwoman's skin tight, thin thin polyester, whatever the hell that crap is. Oh, you're referring specifically to the females' outfits. I'm talking about the men as well. The men's outfits always look like rubber, and that feels ridiculous. Have you ever had rubber on your skin and tried to move? It is impossible. No comment. It is... Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. It's impossible. And the kind of outfits that they had back then that they were designing were all like, oh, this is going to look so slick. It's going to... Oh, look at these angles. I've got the angles, and we're just going to slide Michelle Pfeiffer into this cat suit and she's going to look great and it's going to be so difficult for her to like she's going to be springy with like if she moves her arm out it's going to swing back in because of the kind of fabric they're using but (laughs) they actually had to sew her into the car well there we go it's just ridiculous and with the costuming that's been happening i think since black panther quite frankly uh, there certainly seems to be this new fabric being used and i have had the advantage of looking at the costuming in person at the exhibit that we went to i really like the way it's going with uh, like because you see this one scene and only i would see this because i bet you didn't notice it there's one scene where hope is in her suit and they're in the car and they're talking and she does something with her chest, something really normal and natural, where she, like she's breathing or something. Uh. And you can tell there's a little bit of space between her body and the suit. And I'm okay. like, oh, it's like a real piece of clothing. This is fantastic. Like she can breathe in her clothing. This is great. I was very excited about that. When I first asked you what did you like about the movie, and the first thing you said was the costumes i i knew we were in for trouble because <laughs> if the costumes are the 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 first and the best thing that one thinks is about the movie and we're gonna have an interesting bad uh section here uh was there anything else you wanted to add before i like the world building for the quantum realm it's always nice to see Lawrence fishburne I really liked who he was as a father because there's one moment where the villain is just, she's just distraught and she needs to, like, you know, she needs to do what she needs to do. And he said, we're not going to do it like that. I cannot help you Mm. if you do it like that. Let me me talk about what what I liked about the movie. Um, Then we can move into the other stuff. Uh, I think, first of all, I think the film is fun in general. It's a fun movie. More on that in the next section, but 
there's several several interesting and, and and cool things. The comedy I think really really worked for me. Not just Louise. Actually, I find Louise to be the least effective comedic uh, aspect of the movie because he's just so overtly comedic. I think a lot of the stuff with Paul Rudd really works the the best for me. I like the the action choreography is really cool. They do some really interesting stuff with not only like general kicks and hits and, and things like that that like Wasp and and also Ant Man and using their own powers like we saw illustrated in the first Ant Man movie. They do more of that and expand a little bit more on 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 that with really creative choreographed ideas, but also with the villains' abilities. Uh, this is someone who has the abil- the ability to become intangible, which means they can go through walls. They can appear and unappear too. Um, that's a separate ability, but she the ghost can disappear and reappear and also go through things. So there's some really creative stuff that they do with those abilities as well, which um, I thought was really cool and made the character potentially quite formidable. I really liked Bill Foster, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Of course, comic fans will recognize that name as... Goliath! That's right, Goliath, who was introduced, I believe, in the 60s, but I didn't realize that. I, I knew him more the past 20 years as an Avenger. Uh, and then the first credit scene, which we can talk about in spoilers, I, I really liked... And the visual effects, they do some really cool things with contrasting sizes, you know, between Ant-Man and Wasp. Oh yeah, Um, even with close-up shots. Yeah, there's a scene in particular, I won't go into detail, but it takes place in a school, and you see both of them, well, a particular Ant-Man, he's going in different sizes, and Wasp is interacting with him. And just the the camera trickery that they use and the visual effects also, just a combination of the two is actually really kind of cool and impressive. I can't even wrap my head around how you plan some of those uh, sequences, really. Uh, So stuff like that was uh, really cool for me. And of course, actually, the quote-unquote villain ghost was pretty good. I know that Marvel has had a, a troubled history with memorable villains, but I think... Uh, I think, first of all, the last Ant-Man film, Yellow Jacket, is a really good example of one of their their poorest villains. Because I thought the guy was just really, like... He was kind of weak to begin with, but then he made, like, really stupid mistakes in the third act. I, I just I, I just really didn't like Yellow Jacket. And I thought Ghost was a huge step up from from Yellow Jacket, at the very least. I don't know that she you could ever claim that Ghost is, like, among the top five villains of the entire yeah. series. But maybe top ten. Those were the things that I really liked. But let's talk about what we didn't like. Because it sounds like we both had issues with uh, with this movie. And Shanna, you... Uh, and I think we both have equal amount of notes of issues we had with the movie. Uh, why don't you start? I was a little disappointed with the fact that if you really have to divide the screen time, there was more Ant-Man than there was Wasp. Mm. And that irritated me because, yeah, even though they said it's Ant-Man and the Wasp, she's just this attachment. I'm like, I'm really sorry, and maybe not. I'm a woman, and I'm craving female superheroes. 
and I needed more of her. So she felt more like a B plot to you and not an uh, an equal A plot? Because you have... Let's, she wasn't equal. Let's break it down. We have Ant-Man, Scott. He's got an issue where he's on house arrest, right? And yet he, he's very close to being out of house arrest. And he can finally spend more time and better time with his daughter, right? Outside the home, mm-hmm. right? Then you have the plot of Hope, who is on this mission to obtain the, the things that she needs, the tech that she needs to be able to to find her mom, mm-hmm. right? That's their two storylines. And you didn't feel that they were equal uh, storylines? It's not about like the story. It's about how much I saw her. Uh-huh, right. And I don't think we saw her as much as we should have. Okay. And that's it. Interesting. Yeah. Did you go into this movie expecting that suddenly she would be the main character? I just thought it would be more even. Okay. Or that they'd be together all the time or... Gotcha. Something. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. That's not entirely the case. Uh, in fact, she wants nothing to do with Scott uh, at first, right? And it made me really think, like, man, I should have watched Ant-Man because I can't remember what their beef with Scott is anymore. Because Hope and Hank seem to, like, be really pissed. Royally pissed with them. They, that he took the suit without their permission. That wasn't part of it, but that couldn't have been the entire thing. Mm. They talk a lot about that because the ref- reference, there's a lot of references to Civil War in this, which, of course, took place after Ant-Man did. Was there anything else that you didn't like about the movie? I was slightly bothered about how, how the movie started. It was very quiet. And so at first I was like, wait, are we starting? It was just... I needed something to bring us in. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah. I yeah. thought that could have been improved. I mean, that threw me for a moment. Um, but I was I was okay with that. I, I could see why it's like, oh, whoa, what? <laughs> you know, a little jarring. I felt like we had a couple villains in this movie. It wasn't just yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. So, the other villain was, yeah, for lack of a better term, the southerner that's losing his hair. Uh, yeah, played by Walton Goggins, who yeah. also was the villain in Tomb Raider. If you recall. Yeah, I, I liked him as a southerner. <laughs> I really like southerner villains. Okay, like, that's funny. I think that they're great <laughs> in cinema. Uh-huh. So I felt like they were a bit weak, and I know they were kind of secondary to Ghost. Yeah, yes, exactly. This is one of my problems, too. I'm, I, I, uh, I posed this question to you before, and I pose it to you now. How necessary is Walton Goggins' villain to the story? If you were to completely cut that character out of the movie, how much would the script really be affected? Would we have less wasp time? Is what I'm thinking. More well, critically thinking about it. There's only one scene with him and wasp, right? Well, that's his connection with the movie, is wasp. That's his introduction, right? Yeah. He wants what Wasp and Hank are working on. Yeah, but if that wasn't in the movie at all, I mean, they would still be on their mission trying to get Janet, right? And there'd still be this issue with Ghost. Maybe they just wanted an extra person, like, making it difficult for them to get to the mom. Because what's happening is even the FBI is, like, the bad guy to some extent because, Mm. you know, it's preventing Hank from helping I mean, it's preventing Scott from it's preventing Scott from helping. 
mm-hmm. he has to kind of maneuver around that. Right, it's right. It's like this extra hurdle for them to get uh, to save, is it Janet? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, no. I was just, I was really hoping that the the Southerner, it would like pay off because yes. at first he's like, oh, quantum energy is where we're going. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't know that we were going there. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> That's news to me too. I was like, oh, well, this is great. Is it renewable? Is it clean? Because right. if it is, I want in. Right. You know? <laughs> Especially after watching the documentary we did. And I'm like, oh, Gordon didn't talk about quantum energy. Right. ahead of the game yeah this is great and so i thought oh well maybe that's gonna pay off maybe it's you know because obviously he's not the big villain i thought oh well maybe it's gonna bring us to a new villain you know well and that's the other thing uh is while i do think he is completely inconsequential and adds to the villain problems in the marvel universe and is utterly a waste of walton goggins talent he does seem to be on the phone and actually say that he's he he works for somebody else, right? Other than the FBI informant? No, the FBI informant worked for him. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right? So yeah, the, it it's not like the FBI informant's his boss. That's not how that works, you know? Um, so... I was really shocked that the FBI informant was so puddly-woodly, too. I was like, yeah, he was... I mean, I mean thankfully... It ended up not being the... Maybe I'm spoiled by Copland. It ended up not being Randall Park's character. I would have been disappointed if it was Randall mm-hmm. Park's FBI agent. Because he was an actual, like, somewhat of a character in the movie. And he provided quite a bit of comic relief. I enjoyed Randall Park a lot in the movie. Yeah. But, yeah, this other guy was like... I don't know. He was a, he was a non, non-character. And but, I agree with you. He's a better villain in Tomb Raider. Yeah, yeah and even then, you know... Whatever. So I, I think Walton Goggins is a major problem with uh, his character. is a major problem in the movie. But just in general, aside from a couple of spoilery specifics, the other problem I had with the movie is it is a little too lightweight. Oh, really? In the, in the bigger scheme of things, like, it all feels very inconsequential. <laughs> And, you know, and that, that may, you may be able to say that about the, both Ant-Man movies in general, and that's kind of like what they are being developed in as, like this, you know. But they, they you just had, especially in the wake of something like Infinity War, I think I enjoy Ant-Man more when he's interacting as an Avenger than his own stories. As much as, as fun as they are, they are the the lightest of lightweight uh, in the entire series, right? Um, they're probably the breeziest and most inconsequential of, of the series, comparatively. And I actually, it made me, if anything, more excited about seeing Ant-Man and Wasp interacting with the Avengers and helping the Avengers doing the really awesome, cool like action choreography and what they could do with their powers. I want to see that fight alongside the Avengers. And I, I think I kind of like, ultimately was like, I don't know how much any of this really matters. I feel like it's a good one to introduce little kids to. Like, you could start with Ant-Man. I know it doesn't work in the timeline, but nope. <laughs> starting starting with Ant-Man could be really fun for like a six-year-old. They're kind of like the Guardian, at least especially the first Guardians movies, where it's like, this is so tangential and such pop entertainment. 
yeah. you know, that you could just wa- get away with just watching this and not feel like you're missing out on previous information. Well, and it's, it's good to, you know, gauge how your kid's going to do with the Marvel Universe films. That's fair. That's fair. Now, uh, aside from aside from that, let's open up into a couple general questions I had uh, before going into spoilers, which oh, we need to get I'm to so soon. Bad we want to get into spoilers. Yeah, we need to get to really really quickly here. But really, question I want to ask: What do we think of Hope and Ghost as female characters? Because they're two new significant female characters, and some of this probably will be spoiler conversation in terms of where the direction Ghost goes into, and we can follow up on that later. But in general, what do we think of those two characters? I'm interested in seeing what happens next with them. Mm-hmm. I think this was a good intro of them. I think that they they both have these different purposes, and they're both really driven women. Yeah. And that's always nice to see. So I'm curious about what's going to happen next. Did they blow me away like Gramora blows me away? Uh, no. Really? Because no one can compare to Gamora. <laughs> okay, so it's an unfair comparison in your estimation. <laughs> but I look forward to what's coming next with them. Do you like them as much as Black Widow or any other female characters in the universe? Oh. If we had to compare to Black Widow, I like them more. If I had to compare to Scarlet Witch, I, I do like Scarlet Witch more, but just because like I'm a fan of hers. If I have to compare them to any of the Black Panther women, there's no comparison. I think Black Panther wins. Okay, and I'm certainly not trying to make a situation of who's better or anything, uh, but but I think it's it's a decent question of asking, like, these characters, certain female characters we have spent time with over the past couple of years or more... Do, are they as interesting or good as, uh, as those? And it sounds like more or less you think so. And I would agree, especially Hope. Like we're I, heading into a better direction. I was really excited with the teaser at the end of Ant-Man when, uh, with Hope seeing her Wasp outfit. And I was like, yes, I want to see her be her self that we've seen in that movie as wasp i want to see her kick ass and we get to see that and i thought that was very exciting and i really like the i I do like the character ghost and i'll be interested in seeing if we see more of her Uh, before we move on into spoilers for those who haven't seen the movie do you think at this point the good outweighs the bad you seem to have more bad notes than good notes honestly i feel like any marvel movie that comes out you have to go see it like Regardless of quality. Like, I don't think you should see Iron Man 2 or Thor 2. <laughs> so, I think, yeah, the good slightly outweighs the bad in this film. So, I would almost agree with you. I would say this is very middle-of-the-road Marvel. Uh, I would give this a 6 out of 10. I think it has just as many good things as bad things in it. A lot of, uh, a lot of problems with it, as much as things to enjoy. It is not one of the best movies in, uh, of Marvel. But with that, let's dive in just a little bit more into spoilers for Ant-Man and Wasp. Alright, so, spoilers for Ant-Man and Wasp. So, there's only a couple things for me to talk about in spoilers. Uh, first, one issue I had was the entire thing about Ghost 
is her abilities don't come from her suit, her outfit. They're uh, abilities that have been, um, she's been cursed with after an incident involving her parents that killed her parents. So uh, they try to get scientific about it. Her cells are essentially splitting apart whenever she phases or ghosts, more or less. And she needs, she's on this uh, perpetual quest for treatment. And she feels like, for whatever reason, quantum realm energy is the, the key to it, right? Whatever. So, Ant-Man, Wasp, and original Ant-Man succeed in getting Janet out of the quantum realm and defeating Ghost enough to be able to achieve their mission, right? Janet comes out, sees Ava, the real name of Ghost, hurting, and goes to her and all, and, and all of a sudden like this energy happens that apparently, I think, heals Ava? This did not make sense to me. There's nothing about our knowledge prior about Janet that suggests that she has healing powers or could do whatever the fuck that happened. And that kind of, that it wasn't like, oh my god, I'm tossing the book. But it was something that kind of bothered me a little bit. Feels you know? Like, feels like you're tossing the book a little. No, it was just, it was just one. Feels like you're slamming it shut. No, no. You're putting it down, Jake. Yeah, putting it down gently, I guess. It, it's just, it was kind of one thing that didn't work for me. It was like, what? Whatever. You're just doing this because you feel like it needs to happen or something needs to happen. I really enjoyed the reveal of Janet. I thought that, you know, as she's coming to Hank to help him, you know, he was actually, if you pay attention, you can see that he's starting to kind of vibrate apart, you know, kind of like what's happening with Ava. Yeah, I guess. And she does that healing to him. It's not a, oh my god, I found her, now I can stop pulling my, my cells apart. It was like she helped him because she touched him and that helped. I feel like maybe something happened. I mean, if you're in a particular environment for 30 years, you're going to develop something. And quite frankly, if we can have things like Captain America and Hulk, we can have Janet with healing powers does it need more explanation sure like maybe a sentence yeah from her scientific brain it would be great maybe like, maybe it's also like not that i was huge ant-man and wasp aficionado when i was reading comics but as far as i knew about wasp she didn't have healing powers and so maybe my my comic like fan uh, side of me is kind of like well that's yeah. not anything having to do with the character at all so where's this coming from well, but goliath is still alive and he's well, as a somewhat daughter, so well, I would ask your comic book self to be like, well, maybe you should be enraged about that. I'm not. I mean, I, think, I don't know what this is saying. I I don't know. I feel like giving Janet some sort of healing power that can be used for the greater good, I think is is a great idea hmm. for the universe. Well, it doesn't matter much because no, it doesn't. It doesn't. What happens? Doesn't. God damn it, Thanos. Yep. Is what happened. They all. So here's the other thing. Let's just really briefly explain the first title sequence or end, end credit sequence, which I believe should have been the second one. Is this is how the movie ties in? We learn more or less Ant Man and Wasp is running parallel to the events of Infinity War. Uh, they're oblivious to the events of Infinity War, really. And then, for whatever reason, Janet, Hope, Hank, and Scott are going to send Scott in 
to get some quantum energy to help Ava Because it's the future. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. what they're doing. Because I guess then she's not fully healed or something, and she still needs that, which even more makes my issue with what Janet does to Ghost more like of an issue because I was like, okay, well, what did you do if you still have to do this? But anyway, I, I, I digress. Scott's in there. He's about to be pulled out, and we learn that everybody else disappeared because of Thanos's actions. Thanos... He snapped his fingers, and half the universe was a lit was uh, what do you call it? disintegrated, obliviated, whatever, right? And we learn that Janet, Hank, and Hope, all three of them, happen to be part of that half. So nobody is out there to extract Scott out of the quantum realm, and he's just floating in there, kind of lost and stuck, right? Did you like that uh, sequence? No, I was very pissed off about it. Why is that? That's why I was like, God damn it, Thanos. <laughs> I'm pissed because he got rid of all three. I know you keep saying it's random. It is I'm random. Sorry, it's not random. It is random. It's not random. He doesn't know though no. about those people. No, no. no yeah. No. yeah. He yeah. knows everything because he has all the stones. So don't tell me he knows nothing. I think no. that's stretching no. it. No. That's no. stretching no. it quite You're a bit. Wrong. And I am right. Okay, fine. This is how we're going to move forward with the theory of All Thanos. right, as this is how it works in a marriage. Go ahead. I was very annoyed because I was like, you just got rid of three people that could have knocked you down a peg. Because they could have gone and, I don't know, ripped your insides out. Like <laughs> I, They could Jesus. have done something quite phenomenal and you got rid of them. Mm. So I'm quite annoyed. I'm quite annoyed. It's For not looking random. At all. For me, the issue is more, oh, I totally thought Ant-Man was going to be in the next Avengers movie. Looks like he's not, and he's he's going to be incapacitated completely until... It is entirely possible that Goliath will come and be like, what is happening here? That I don't would... know where they're parked. Maybe could... they're parked on their building, their lab. Right, right, right. right and it's right. possible that Goliath would be like, well, if Goliath's around, I mean, maybe Thanos took care of him, too. Yeah, who knows? You know? who maybe knows? he took care of Ghost as well. Who knows? In that case, Ant-Man screwed. Yeah. But... Yeah. No, but that is a good theory that maybe he, just, like, for whatever random reason, pops up going... If they were getting something for Ava... Yeah. They were probably going to touch base with Goliath and Ava. Maybe, yeah. And if Goliath hasn't been... That would be a relief for me, because I would like to see Ant-Man rejoin the Avengers again. But at any rate, what I didn't like was the second credits scene, which was literally... God, we waited for that. Yeah, it was five minutes of credits, and then we see an ant, human-sized ant, playing drums, which is a goof on... One of the subplot elements is they had to get an ant to wear Scott's ankle bracelet thing, so he's monitored, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and they apparently monitor his behaviors in the home through the ankle bracelet. And so that they can they, understand his routine so that they, if something's out of routine, I guess. they have evidence to question. So the ant is like watching TV and all these sorts of things. And it basically, we came back to an ant playing drums and that was it. Yeah. It was like, hey, hey guys, don't be too mad about Thanos. Hey, hey. I don't know. Yeah. I think the only bit, the comedic bit that they've ever done successfully with these is the shawarma thing at the end of 2012's Avengers. 
All that of the other sense. ones are just like completely disposable, forgettable, or mildly annoying because they made us sit around for that. And <laughs> this is one of those. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about, spoilery? Yeah, I wanted to say that the daughter, hang, uh, Scott's daughter was really fun and I really liked the Pinterest-worthy contraption he had made to help her imagine being small. Oh yeah, that was the cardboard. That uh, was like, he uh, needs to take photos of that and Pinterest that. It's a lot of work, man. It's oh a my lot of God, work. it's a lot of boxes. It's pretty awesome, but that is a lot of uh, UPS boxes. Yeah. <laughs> and I really enjoyed the emergency worthy call when they were, you know, they were trying to get the building back from Ghost and, you know, they didn't know at the time, Goliath. The lab. Yeah, the, the lab and... Oh, her call, the daughter's call. Yeah, and the tied so up. she gets, yep. she gets, he gets that call, and he's like, "No, it could be an emergency. I have to answer it. Let me answer it." And like Elias' father, side is like, "Okay, I'm gonna let him answer it." And it's about the fucking soccer shoes, and it's you always get that call. Yeah. About dad, dad, where are my soccer shoes? Because I've had those calls as a nanny. Where have you seen the child's soccer shoes? Yeah. That's right. Where they were. <laughs> well, what's also, what also makes that scene really work is you think it's a, a criminal interrogation scene where the bad guys are interrogating the good guys, yeah, you know, and um, it totally undercuts the mood of the scene. Well, even even just the uh, the ringtone alone, while Lawrence Fishburne is explaining <laughs> the plan to them. <laughs> That's like our life. Our life these days, where we get interrupted by friggin' phones in whatever manner. Yeah. I also really loved and appreciated the ex-cons making their ex-con security company. Yeah, right. And as entrepreneurs, we're trying to make it work. Yeah. And it makes sense to me. And it's a good it's a good pick for a business to do security, you know. And yeah. that moment where Luis is given the truth serum and he's like, I'm really sorry, guys. Like, the we're so in the red right now and I want to get into the black, but we're so in the red right now and I don't know if we're going to make it. And it's like every single entrepreneur can relate to that. Yeah, that, that was <laughs> kind of scary for me. But uh, So there was a lot of relatable. There's no truth syrup. Yeah. Was, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so final final thoughts, unless there's anything else you really uh, thought was we needed to talk about. No, I mean, the good did outweigh the bad slightly. Yeah. There were lots of comedic moments, and the FBI was just stupid, and it's fun when they make fun of the FBI. So, ultimately, Ant-Man and the Wasp is one of those movies where if you're looking for something fun and diverting for the summer then it definitely is your cup of tea. Definitely satisfies that. I don't, don't expect it to be one of the best Marvel movies or best superhero movies. And it is very much like a series of movies we've seen this year where uh, it's okay. You know, kind of like Deadpool 2 where it's good but not great, you know, or kind of mediocre. And, and other movies we've seen this year that we've talked about in previous episodes. Uh, so, that's our review of Ant-Man and the Wasp. What did you think of the film? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Now it's time for Film Faves. For those who are new, each month, Film Faves counts down our favorite films in a given subject of film. Rather than listing only 10, followed up by a list of honorable mentions, Film Faves mostly sticks with a list of 12 favorites and leaves it at that. It's not intended to be an objective best-of list, but a way of both expressing a subjective love of film while also talking about a slew of older movies 
and of course hopefully exposing you to films you haven't heard of or seen before on with it this is a year of hits of both mediocre and favorable quality 1996 of the former films like ransom and twister both hit the top of the box office of the latter well we'll get to those later the awards circuit seemed to favor the english patient shine and secrets and lies I believe it was the first year that the cast members of the TV show Friends attempted to cross their star power to films. Jennifer Aniston starred in the Edward Burns film She's the One. David Schwimmer starred in The Paul Bearer. Matt LeBlanc starred in Ed, the baseball comedy. Lisa Kudrow co-starred in the Albert Brooks film Mother. And Courtney Cox starred in Scream. While Cox had the more successful film that year, Aniston would go on to have the bigger success of all her castmates, starring in such films as Office Space, Bruce Almighty, and Marley and Me. Office Space! 1996 had some creative lows, also, including Chain Reaction, The Crow, City of Angels, The Island of Dr. Moreau, Jingle All the Way, Joe's Apartment, Kazam, Mars Attacks, Mr. Ron, The Phantom, Space Jam, Spy Hard, Strip Tease, Tremors 2, Aftershocks, and The Trigger Effect. And a lot of not-so-great movies in 96. On the plus side, there were some highs, including Big Night, The Birdcage, The Craft, Avida, Fly Away Home, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, Happy Gilmore, and I Shot Andy Warhol, which is an F-rated movie that I hoped we'd be able to revisit, but is literally nowhere to stream. Is it literally shooting Andy Warhol? I really want you to see it so you can find out. Oh, okay. Uh, Lone Star, The People vs. Larry Flint, Rumble in the Bronx, which was a huge success for Jackie Chan in the States, Slim Blade, Swainer's A Time to Kill, Tin Cup, Trainspotting, as well as the aforementioned awards winners. How, that said, like 1996 was a huge challenge uh, for me. I feel like the 90s are kind of in a, every other year in terms of good and, and uh, good years and mediocre years. 96 is very much a mediocre year where pretty much... What's in my list is what I liked and not much beyond that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So why don't you get us started with your number 12 favorite movie of 1996. My number 12 is House Arrest. Okay, don't judge. It has Jamie Lee Curtis and that's probably the main reason why I love it. The movie is a story of a group of kids who are forcing their parents, all forcing their parents together, essentially kidnapping them and placing them under house arrest in the basement for everyone to figure out their issues with each other so that they don't get divorced. Hmm. So kind of fun because it's kind of like they have the upper hand. So I enjoy that movie because the kids have the upper hand. Very good. My number 12, my list starts out with Shakespeare. And so my number 12 is a documentary called Looking for Richard. Okay. This little scene documentary is one of the few of the 90s to have the magnetism and the accessibility of so many documentaries of recent years. In it, Al Pacino, with the aid of friends and fellow actors uh, such as... Gordon McDonald and Harris Eulin, Alec Baldwin, Kevin Conway, Kevin Spacey, Winona Ryder, Estelle Parsons. They, they use rehearsals, table reads, reenactments, street interviews, 
and more to try to understand, appreciate, and find relevance in Shakespeare's works, specifically Richard III. Sound boring? Not with Pacino holding our hand along the way, as well as a cast of thespians as impressive as this one, with Kenneth Branagh, John Gilgood, Rosemary Harris, James Earl Jones, and so on. This film successfully conveys the love of acting and the craft these participants so rarely are given the opportunity to express on camera. It's a joy to watch, and you'll feel smarter too. That's Looking for Richard. And I should note, uh, one thing about 1996 that's really odd is, you know, usually we try to direct you to where you can find our selections to stream on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and HBO Now. This is the first year where none of my selections are available to stream. And that's because there's very few 1996 films that are available to stream. I mean, it's like a lot of the bad ones, like The Phantom and Phenomenon and, you know. Well, and I think a lot of these films from 1996 were available to stream a month or two ago. Perhaps. And it looks like they've rotated things. Yeah. So what's your number 11? Speaking of things that were available to stream... (laughs) The Craft. Ah. This is starring Robin Tinney. Nev Campbell. And then who's this? Fariza Volk. Fariza Volk and yeah. Rachel True. Yeah. This is four girls that become friends. A new per- a, a new student comes to this Catholic prep school. Robin Tunney. I don't know what that means because prep to me is elementary, so I'm just going to go ahead and say high school. And she becomes friends with the other three girls, and they begin practicing witchcraft. And they are conjuring up all sorts of goodies and things, and like anyone who has newfound power, they go a little too far to one side, and they get, they get consequences. So lots of fun. It, you know, watching this as a teenage girl... This was very exciting for me because I was always curious about witchcraft, and obviously this shouldn't be your first introduction to witchcraft. But it was very interesting to see these sort of rejects in the high school, uh, stereotypical sense, uh, taking back some sort of power. Mm-hmm. And I would always switch the movie off when the reckoning would happen. So now, now I can get through it just, you know, okay. Yeah, I remember that being a fun movie, uh, for sure, and it's kind of almost a cult classic at this point. Mm -hmm. My next film is another Shakespeare film called Twelfth Night, or What You Will. It is uh, Shakespeare's comedy of gender confusion, in which a girl disguises herself as a man to be near the count she adores, only to be pursued by the woman he loves. Oh, that's so fun! It is hilarious. It has a wonderful cast. That includes Helena Bonham Carter and Imogen Stubbs and Ben Kingsley and Nigel Hawthorne and Mel Smith. And I especially remember loving Ben Kingsley in it, who kind of plays the fool, Festa. But uh, this came out in a time when there was a slew of, of Shakespeare films coming out during the course of the 90s. You'll probably hear more about these uh, in later episodes, too. But this was always a fun one. Uh, you know, it's one of Shakespeare's comedies and one of his better comedies. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And it's called Twelfth Night or What You Will. My number 10 is 
fairy tale, a true story. Now, I was a huge fan of fairies when I was younger. I even had that really popular fairy book where it's actually quite awful how it's made. A girl claims that this is her fairy journal and she smashes fairies into her book. So it's actually really what macabre. Wow. But anyway, I was always fascinated with fairies. And this movie is set in, it's actually on a true event. It's set in 1917 and there are two children that set up some images, uh, photographs to be more specific. This is in a time where anything that is photographed must be realistic because before that you had paintings and they weren't necessarily realistic. They were more artistic than anything else. And so when people saw a photo, they instantly believed it. Not so much. Photography can be an art form too, which means it can lie. There are two children that take a photograph that, you know, that seems to portray that fairies do exist. And it takes some time, but a lot of attention is being brought on to this family because they're trying to figure out whether the photographs are real or not. It's very interesting because you have Harvey Keitel apparently playing Harry Houdini. Then you have Peter O'Toole playing Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. And another actress named Anna Chancellor playing Peter Pan. Where, what a, f- a fascinating <laughs> cast list here. Yeah, it was a very, it's a very enchanting film. Huh. I, I really liked it. Huh, interesting. Okay. Number 10 is From Dust Till Dawn. The Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez collaboration, 10 years before they would create uh, Grindhouse, if I remember correctly. Okay, so... I didn't know that this was 96. I would have put it in my list. Uh Aha, I didn't have another one, did you? Well, there we go. We'll just go with this. So this stars George Clooney, who was just leaping off of ER, the TV series, for this. Quentin Tarantino himself, Harvey Keitel... Also, and Juliette Lewis, among others, Salma Hayek, most notably. It's basically about these two criminals that take a a family hostage and tell this family to drive them over the border into Mexico to safety. You know, these two criminals, played by George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino, they're kind of hotheads, especially uh, Tarantino's character. And they end up running into more trouble than they ever imagined. Now, I... My teenage self and my friends loved this movie. We watched it all the time. And I've always found over the years it best to go in cold, not knowing anything more than what I just described. And, and, and especially it's fun to look at the faces of the people I'm showing it to as the second half of the film begins um, because uh, they, they definitely get something they're not expecting. Yes, that happened with me. I had no idea that was going to happen, and I thought it was a joke. It was pretty funny. (laughs) It was pretty funny. And speaking of funny, this is also a fairly humorous film, but uh, and also a lot of fun. And I think at this point, Rodriguez was uh, leaping off of, I think, two of his El Mariachi trilogy films, and so he was kind of playing with a bigger budget and having a lot of fun. So that's From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, much better than the TV series and its sequels, by the way. How long did the TV series last? I think it's still going, if I'm not mistaken. Wait, what? When did it start? A couple of years ago. Oh. 
Yeah, anyway, what is your number nine? My number nine is Mission Impossible. The, a surprisingly successful hexology. Very cool. It's the first one of the hexology, in case you guys were wondering. I am not into this kind of movie usually, but uh, we watched, I think we watched number three or four together. And I was like, this is actually really great. And so we started looking at the other ones. And this is about, well, it stars Tom Cruise. He's an American agent and he's being accused of, hmm, like disloyalty to his country. And he needs to figure out who actually is making that seem like the truth. And he needs to break that apart. And he has to do it all by himself. That's really cool because it's my, also my number nine. Oh, yeah. And it also stars John Voight. Yep, John Voight. Oh, was it? Uh, Jean Reno. Jean Reno. Oh, sorry. Wow. I'm so bad today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Vin Rames, Kristen Scott Thomas, Emilio Estevez was in it, Vanessa Redgrave. And I'm trying to find the female love interest. Oh, yes, Emmanuel Barrett. Um, so that was a great cast. I remember there was a lot of anticipation for the film because it was it was an adaptation of the TV series oh. right from the 70s, I believe it was. It ended up being smarter than people expected it to be, so smart that they had a hard time following what was oh, actually really happening, right? right? <laughs> And you watch it in hindsight, and it, 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 it makes perfect sense. It's not actually that complicated, but it definitely outsmarted most audiences, and it ignited a whole new franchise that is still going this summer, which will probably be the next episode. But yeah. Very exciting. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What is your number eight? My number eight is my first introduction to the Muppets, Muppet Treasure Island. Oh. And obviously that's a, you know, a fun take on the Treasure Island story. It's got Tim Curry, Billy Connolly. It's got, who is here? Kevin Bishop is Jim Hawkins. And it's a lot of fun. I love the songs that they did in this. And this was also around the time where PCs were starting to, you know, become affordable. And so they had different PC games for different movies. And I remember that we had a three-disc game set of this particular movie for our PC. And it was just, it was always so much fun. I have never actually seen that one. Oh, it's my favorite. My number eight is Independence Day. ID4, as the marketing called it. This film was a huge phenomenon with a huge cast, and I remember it being such a big deal, such popcorn blockbuster excitement. One of the biggest things was who survives, who dies, you know, because the cast was so big, and you knew, you knew the aliens were just uh, going to blow shit up all around the world or all around the country, right? And so you didn't know of the cast that, uh, that you knew of who was going to survive you knew someone was going to die and that was that was a lot of the fun of the movie at the time it still is fun really uh, launched will smith's career in this huge blockbuster trajectory you know he did bad boys in 1995 i believe if i'm not mistaken and then but with independence day he all of a sudden had this run for a while of being a huge summer uh, box office star you know 
So, but this is the one that I recall started it all, and it is a lot of fun. I'm still a fan of it. I think it's it's it holds up pretty well as popcorn entertainment, and it's a great time. That's Independence Day. I try to watch it every year, by the way, and it's kind of fun just to do this exercise, you know, because the movie's split up July 2nd, 3rd, 4th. Ah. And it's kind of fun to do this exercise where you watch July 2nd on July 2nd, 3rd on the 3rd, and 4th on the 4th. I think I missed, the, I missed it the time you did that. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Or at the very least, just watch the movie during the holiday sometime. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool, too. What's your next film? My number seven is Matilda. This is based on the Roald Dahl story. And anything by Roald Dahl is going to be awesome. It's about a young girl who is smart, she is kind, she is magical, and (laughs) she is surrounded by the worst parents ever, and, you know, that's played by Danny DeVito, and I think it's... Rhea Perlman? Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Oh my gosh, they're such hideous people, it's fantastic. Mm. Much, Much like Roald Dahl's books, how he portrays adults, and she also has the worst principal, but the best teacher. And Matilda is played by Mara Wilson. And I just remember seeing this and thinking, oh my gosh, girls can be smart and girls can be magical and girls can kick ass. Very cool. My next film is William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet by Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann's take on a tale of star-crossed lovers is the most exciting to date. The first five minutes alone, full of fast-paced editing and a loud epic score, still makes my jaw drop. This film starts out by practically punching you in the face. One could credit this film's success to its direction. It's frenetic, creative, with a bold color palette, unforgettable locations, and a great, great soundtrack, which I still love to this day. But credit really must also go to a cast that turns something that could have seemed like little more than a gimmick into a worthwhile translation of Shakespeare's text. Paul Rudd, John Leguizamo, Paul Sorvino, Pete Possethwaite, and, of course, DiCaprio and Claire Danes are all spectacular. Besides, how can one hate on a film that legitimately made teens interested in such arguably incoherent yet essential pieces of literature? Well, that was quite eloquently put, my love. Thank you. I can't follow up that. Uh, I also enjoyed that film and forgot it was a 96 film. Oh my gosh, you're kidding me. <laughs> so my number six is James and the Giant Peach, and this oh. is, again, a Roald Dahl story. Yeah. So two Roald Dahl stories. So I'm hitting the Roald Dahl, and you're hitting the William Shakespeare. Yeah, I am. Three Shakespeare <laughs> movies on my list. All right. So this is about James, whose parents died, and therefore he has to live with his two hideous aunts, and it's, I think Spiker and Sponge are their names. So mm. it's just really particularly wicked (laughs) and and, I mean who is the person in charge of this who directed this was it Henry Selleck the guy who did the Nightmare Before Christmas ah yes that must be it so you know anyway something magical happens he gets a wish granted and the wish goes awry and now he has a giant peach and friends in the giant peach and this movie will make your mouth water. It'll make you want to go eat peaches, especially if it's, you know, the date of winter and there are no peaches to be had. It's very upsetting. 
But I really enjoy the characters and I thoroughly enjoy the songs. There's one song that comes on and I sing it very, very loudly and very, very obnoxiously. And it, it's just a lot of fun. We've got voice talents of Simon Callow. We've got... Simon Callow? Yeah. We've got Jane Neves. We have... Oh, gosh. Who is on Sponge? Miriam Margulies? Margulies. I don't know that one. But you have also uh, Richard Dreyfus, And this is another movie with Pete Postlewaite. Oh, my gosh. He was awesome. Oh, and Susan Sarandon. Yep. She voices the spider. David Thewlis. He, he does the earthworm, who's incredibly dramatic. And it was indeed directed by Henry Selleck. Fantastic. I, I thoroughly enjoy that film. My next film is Scream. Dare I say... No. This is among the That's best so scary. horror films I've ever seen. You'll want to have curtains. You'll never be okay with bare windows at night. So... As it's been mentioned quite frequently, um, the horror genre was pretty much running on sequelitis and derivative crap, save for an occasional Stephen King film by the mid-90s. Then one of the most legendary minds of the genre, Wes Craven, revived it while simultaneously skewering it. Non-horror fans will not only appreciate the film's humor, but also that this slasher film is less about gory killings than creating suspense. This has always helped set Scream apart from the Friday the 13th and the Saws, which focus more on creative and gory kills than character and story. Plus, Scream has one of the best casts of any horror film ever, as it includes Nev Campbell, Ski Ulrich. Well, you've got Drew Barrymore. Yeah, Drew Barrymore, absolutely. Courtney Cox, oh, David Arquette, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the list just goes on. So, it's a great time that is scream it's my number six my number five is first wives club you don't own me oh that song is so fantastic because of that movie and and because it's a good song anyway it stars goldie hahn bet midler diane keaton maggie smith sarah jessica parker stocker channing victor garber Oh my gosh, there's so many fun people in this film, but I always forget that Stocker Channing and Maggie Smith are in it. So every time I see that, I'm like, oh my god, there they are! This is so great! And what is the First Wives Club? So this is a story of three women who are reunited after the death of their friend. It's not a spoiler. It happens in the first, like, three minutes. Mm. And they're all divorced women, and they are ready for revenge on their husbands. And they all work together to bring about this revenge because, essentially, that's what happened to their friend. Their friend committed suicide after... um, Being cheated on, or what? Yeah, it was cheating. Oh. Yeah, I think that was it. Okay. Yes, it was just too much. Damn. So, it was, oh, it's just so much fun, and it's very empowering, and these are really big personalities. Sure. And uh, it's just, Sarah Jessica Parker looks so great. She is just, she acts like this stupid, flimsy, naive person, and then you've got, you know, Diane Keaton and Goldie Hawn and Bette Midler, they are these smart, seasoned women who know what's what. Mm. And they're just so wild. And then you have Maggie Smith, who was also divorced. So it's like this divorced... They were the first wives. Gotcha. And now there's a second wife or something. So they were the firsts. 
Very cool. My number five is Fargo. This is probably my second favorite Coen Brothers film. True Grit is uh, might be number one. It's a brilliant little tale about how money can corrupt even the quaintest of us. It starred William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi, Pierce Stormare, and Francis McDormand. McDormand played one of the decade's best characters, a small-town sheriff who's pregnant, but much cleverer than appearances would seem. Fargo isn't brilliant for its story as much as its characters, as is often the case in Coen Brothers films. The characters here are so distinct as to be unforgettable. It'd been more than a decade since I last saw Fargo until recently, and while the details of the story were fuzzy beforehand, the characters always left a mark. And that is Fargo. That is my number five. My number four is Independence Day. There are a lot of quotes that I have my favorite quotes from Independence Day. <laughs> like, and what the hell is that smell? <laughs> it's like it all starts with, I was just at a freaking, I was just going to have a freaking barbecue, okay? And then something of uh, national importance messed my plans up. Because <laughs> that's in another movie too. I think that's in Bad Boys too. Oh, that's fun. Maybe it's a reference. Hmm. Or maybe it's just 4th of July. Anyway. You've already spoken about this, and you've said good things. This was my introduction to Jeff Goldblum. Oh, really? I mean, I had seen Jurassic Park. Yeah, 1993. But I think I only got to watch that the same year as Independence Day. Oh, wow. Because of my age. Okay. So, it was... I think I got to see Independence Day first. Okay. And then Jurassic Park. Right. And to a little kid, you know, it's, it's a little difficult to recognize people. Uh, and uh, he kind of looks really different between the two films. Sure, sure. And it was very funny because recycling was non-existent in South Africa uh, when I was growing up. It's only just started to happen. And you see Jeff Goldblum totally lose his shit over oh, yeah, <laughs> recycling yeah. and trying to save the planet. And then he has that. these aliens. <laughs> They're going to come destroy it anyway. Yeah. So it's, you know, Will Smith is so much fun. Jeff Goldblum is so much fun. Yeah. I, who is Jeff Goldblum's friend? Who, His friend. Uh, you know, he says, oh, should I call my mother? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who His co-worker, that? Harvey Firestein. Oh, I love who's him. Who's in also Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes, I love him too. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. My next film is The Rock. Welcome to The Rock. This is my favorite Michael Bay film. Yes, I usually hate majority of what that director represents, but the guy is capable of making a genuinely good action film, and The Rock is his best. In my opinion, Transformers, the original, would come uh, second. An affable FBI chemist is roped into a secret mission to team up with a former inmate of Alcatraz Island, played by Sean Connery, to break into the former prison and stop a flipped general, played by Ed Harris, who threatens to kill San Francisco population for a cause. The Rock is one of the coolest action films ever made with one of the greatest car chases I've ever seen. An amazing cast that brings more than one dimension to their characters. I would argue Ed Harris's General Hummel is one of the best villains of the 90s. And some great dialogue writing. Fire off your favorite quote now. It is The Rock and it is... your stupid Humvee. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it is my, my number four. Shanna. My number three is The Rock. Very cool. Yeah. 
Um, so you've said enough about this, but and I've already said a favorite quote. But my bro- I will say that my brother, you know, when he was, I don't know, 10, he watched this thing as much as he watched Star Wars for about a month. A 10? Yeah, 10. 10? Yeah. Shit happens. Okay. Wow. I mean, I don't know what he picked up on, and I don't know what went over his head. Hopefully that kind of stuff went over his head, and the other stuff was... I think he just liked the quotes. I think he just liked Sean Connery. Uh-huh. And he liked oh. Humvees. So... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, that is certainly a, a fun film, and it's awesome that it's on both our lists. My number three is Star Trek First Contact. Ooh, is that the one when they are trying to make sure that the creator of like speedy space travel gets his, his project completed in time? Yes, yeah, sort to be of. be seen by... Sort of. So I grew up with the Star Trek franchise, but this was the first to feel like an exciting action film. If you like J.J. Abrams' reboot, then you'll probably enjoy First Contact. It is quite distinct for its mix of Invasion of the Body Snatchers flavor and time travel story. Director and star Jonathan Frakes had a lot to juggle, but he nailed it, creating the best Next Generation film. And I would say this one is up there with Wrath of Khan as my favorite Trek films, probably even in the top five Star Trek films of all time. That is Star Trek First Contact, and it is my number three, surprisingly. I like that movie, too. My number two is A Time to Kill. That's your second favorite movie of 1996? Oh my god, I love this film. Wow. As as, awful as it is, it's, it's... still amazing well it's not awful i would say but it's surprising to see it's your second favorite well it's a difficult story to get through the 10 year old gets raped well okay okay, yeah and that's not a spoiler it's in the description yeah right so this is starring matthew mcconaughey sandra bullock samuel l jackson kevin spacey oliver pratt oh my gosh and then it just carries on donald sutherland we've got keith sutherland yeah it's a big cast yes one's the father of the (laughs) other Wow, that's really funny because in the movie, they're on other sides of the scale. They're not related in the movie. Uh. This is happening in Canton, Mississippi, where during a time where racism and manipulation of the law and getting away with crimes of hate is still possible. But but wait, Matthew McConaughey and Sandra Bullock defend Samuel L. Jackson who is accused of murdering two white men who raped his 10-year-old daughter, right. inciting violent retribution and revenge from the Ku Klux Klan. Right. So it does have a few difficult moments in it, but yeah. it's totally worth the watch. It still works. It still works. Uh, we watched it last year, I believe it was, again. and mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a really good pick. That's a really good pick. Uh, my second favorite film of 1996 is still... Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell is perhaps my favorite anime. I first saw it in, a, in college, which involved analyzing the film. It blew my mind. Here's a film with a very simple plot, yet with more philosophical discourse than exposition, so that it's easy to lose track of who's who and what's going on. In a future Japan, many government agents have replaced parts of their bodies with cybernetics, Some agents are more cybernetic than others. When a hacker called the Puppet Master begins hacking humans and secret agent cyborgs, three agents work together to find and stop him. Along the way, they discover there's more to the situation than just a talented mind. 
Ghost in the Shell not only has proof that animation can go beyond the Disney template and tell stories for adults, but it also serves as a great sci-fi film that asks questions about what defines a soul and makes us who we are. A great amount of attention is spent on building the world this story exists in, including a two-minute sequence of a bustling tech-heavy Tokyo that ends on a shot of a mannequin. Also, Ghost in the Shell contributed to the kick-ass sci-fi heroin club with Kusanagi, a cyborg who will blow your head off and then analyze her own humanity, or lack thereof. Huh, let's run diagnostics. Right. <laughs> Ghost in the Shell is exciting highbrow entertainment at its best. Do not see last year's remake. Watch the anime original. You will thank me for it. Shanna? What is your favorite film of 1996? My favorite film of 96 is Fargo. I should not be surprised. No, you shouldn't. Marge Gunderson is my hero. <laughs> I, I think she's amazing. I, I think the bizarreness of this film is just... I think this was my first Coen Brothers film. Uh-huh. And for this yep, to be I showed my, you this. Yeah, for yeah. this to be my first one <laughs> was quite something. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, they're going to say... They do this with all their films. They're like, it's based on a true story. And then it's like, did they do it? I don't know if they do it on all oh. their films, but they did fuck, or fuck with audiences with that one. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That like something like, yeah, but you know, just that concept alone is like, well, how do you know it hasn't happened or something similar to it hasn't <laughs> right. happened? Right. I'm sure parts of it have happened, if not all of it together. Sure. Because only the Coen brothers, and I've said this before, are capable of stringing together bizarre situations and actions you know into one story i have a lot of fun with this film i i love all the characters i'm rooting for everyone <laughs> really actually I that's have interesting this i have this ping pong you know triple ping pong game in my head that's happening where i'm like oh i hope i hope you do okay oh you went too far okay i'm gonna go over here now hope you get that one i hope you get that one i hope you get what you deserve you pissed me off <laughs> it's like it's it's a very fun game that happens in my head awesome top tier yeah and it's easily one of their most popular films as well and uh, I'm glad they got the Oscar for that one. I believe they got the Oscar for that. If they didn't, then it's a damn crime. Oh, yeah, no, it lost to English Patient. It, it was lose. a damn crime. Yeah. Oh, my God. No that one talks sucked. about the English Patient, for fuck's sake. No, nobody does. Anyway, People yeah. People talk about Fargo all the time. Yeah, Fargo, absolutely. Come Marge on. Marge Gunderson for president. Yeah, one of the greatest films and certainly one of the best of the 90s. So my favorite film, though, of, of 1996, without a doubt, is Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire. Forget the you complete me's and the you had me at hellos. Although that is good stuff in the context of a film. Jerry Maguire is a sports film about self-improvement and taking a risk on someone. The film begins with the epiphany that the main character has lost his way. So he advocates a business model that is more personal and less greedy and gets fired for it. Maguire, played by Tom Cruise, doesn't turn into an amazing dude immediately upon his mission statement all-nighter. He just becomes a better businessman. He has quite a way to go as a man. It is through his relationships with Dorothy, played by Renee Zellweger, who's never been more amazing, and his only client, Rod Tidwell, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., mm -hmm. who won an Oscar for his role, then quickly lost his way, because he's never been as good. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it's only through them that Jerry slowly learns to become a better man. After watching this film again, 
It's incredible to think that this was Cameron Crowe's next film after Singles. Now, this is 20 years later at this point, right? Singles is a film that has its strength, but isn't nearly as solid as Jerry Maguire. Like that film, Maguire certainly is a product of its time, but it has aged better and is anything but the saccharine love story many remember it to be. Some great work by all involved made for one of the best films of 1996. And having been an entrepreneur for the past seven years, I actually think Jerry Maguire is a great entrepreneur film too. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of inspiring in that way. So I absolutely adore Jerry Maguire. So if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. It's my favorite film of 1996. I think if I have to compare Jerry Maguire and singles, I'm more of a singles fan. That's that that makes my heart sing, love. Oh, okay, love. But what is your favorite film of 1996 audiences? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. That's going to about do it for us in this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shanna, where can people find you on the internets? People can find me at www.shannapaxton.com. That's S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N. And all my social media channels will be available to follow over there. Very cool. So go to thegibsonreview.com for more episodes and more articles. The path, the, the original article, Film Faves 96, is on there. Go to Facebook for third-party links, uh, the occasional short review on there, and also to find links to the episodes. Uh, go to iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm still trying to find time to add us onto Google Play, but definitely look for us on those platforms. And go to Flickchart, the Gibson 99, to find me. I've just, just been updating, actually, uh, 2017 movies on the list, and I'm on to 2018 movies, too. So, next time on The Movie Lovers, on episode 35, I think it will be, um, I believe... Our main event will be Mission Impossible Fallout. So it's almost a shame that um, we didn't sync it up, weren't able to sync it up with the original Mission Impossible movie. But, say la vie, and I th- so I think, though, that Film Faves will be 1995. A much more exciting year, 95 is. See if you can place these quotes. Houston, we have a problem. What's in the box? Who is Kaiser Soze? Oh, I love that one. And finish him. Well, if you can't place it right away, we will talk to you all about it next time on The Movie Lovers. This is Jeff and Shanna saying... Bye-bye. Keep loving the movies.